So, I want to let you know I have never bought a lottery ticket, never gambled, never played a hand of poker. Um, well, I say I've never gambled. I was at Paradise Island in 1985 in the Bahamas, and I took one quarter and I stuck it in a slot machine and I pulled the handle and whatever was supposed to happen, which I had no clue what was supposed to happen, it, it didn't line up, so I didn't win anything. So I didn't put another quarter in because I didn't want to lose the next quarter. So um, I just decided that gambling was not for me. We had ridden on a ship, one of those cruise ships in 85 over to the Bahamas, um, uh, us and, an, and another couple. And I will tell you, on the ship there was a casino, and they were gambling all the time. And they were trying to get me to come to the table. And all I would do is watch. I was thinking, well, you know, I don't know anything about gambling. Um, I really don't have any money to lose. And why would I make myself look foolish doing it? So one night while we were in the Bahamas, we were at Paradise Island at the casino, and they do dinner shows, and we were waiting on a dinner show. This happens to be the same night I stuck my quarter in. I lost my quarter that I could never get back. And so we were walking around waiting for the dinner show, and um, I noticed everybody gathering around this table. And so... I went over, and there was about three deep around this poker table. And they were playing, and everyone was watching, and people were saying, I fold one right after another. So I turned to the guy beside of me. Yes, I'm 27 years old. Yes, I spent four years in the military out of high school. I had no clue what these terms were. I said, what does fold mean? So he told me. So people were folding, and um, it came down to two players that were at the table, and they were eyeing their cards, you know, lifting the corner up and looking at it, and then they would eye each other, and one of them would bet, you know, put a chip in, and the other would put a chip in. And, and finally, one of the guys had this stack of chips in front of him, and he took his hands and he pushed them to the center of the table, and he said, I'm going all in. Okay. Weren't sure what that meant, but I knew that he didn't have any chips left. The other guy said, I'll call you. So I turned to the guy beside me. I said, what does that mean? <laughs> so he told me. And so... We were there when the guy had pushed all his chips in. Everybody around the table kind of gasped, like, <gasps> and then there was just silence. And so the guy beside me, after, I, after the guy called, um, he turned to me and he said, this guy has to be confident on the hand he's got, or he would have never gone all in. And he was. Everything on the table at the end of that hand was his. He won thousands of dollars. I was thinking this week, as I was thinking about going all in 
What would it look like if we went all in on Jesus? What would that look like if we were all in, if we really believed, if we had the confidence in what God has done for us through Jesus? If we really had that confidence that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he was raised to new life so that I would have life in him, if I was all in on that, leaving nothing back, giving him everything that I am every day, giving it all to him, what if we went all in? What would that look like? We begin today the fourth week of the 50 days to vitality. And, and as I said last week, it's been very challenging for me because it's been a self-examination of myself. It's been a self-examination of what I see in the church that I've pastored for 15 years. And, and so it's been tough. Um, this evaluation has been in the forefront of my mind for these last uh, three weeks. And so, starting this fourth week is going to be a, a, another challenge for all of us that is doing this study, this daily devotion, and writing down our thoughts on the Scripture and how that Scripture or thought for the day impacts our life. And so, today we're in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, and if you want to turn there, I'll be reading verses uh, 34 through 40. And so, again, this, this text is challenging for us, and you say, oh, I know this text. I could probably quote this text from memory. It's one of those things that I've heard a lot and been preached on a lot, and so you're not going to tell me anything new today. I know it all. No, I don't think you're thinking that. It's okay. Don't tune out. It's okay. So here we go. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? I want you to notice that that's singular. That's important to know. Teacher. Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning for what you would hold for all of us through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so um, we start off with the reminder that the Pharisees were concerned with tradition. We've talked about this before as we were going through the parables of Jesus, and we'll get back to that after Easter. But 
these traditions were important. They believed that it kept order. They believed that it kept them off of shaky ground. They believed as they, they taught this importance of learning and understanding and knowing what God said in his word, which we call the Old Testament, that this was an expectation of God that they would know this and live this out. They were schooled in the scriptures. And so the Pharisees in our text, and we'll look a little bit before in a minute, but in our text this morning, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And, and so they get together and they say, well, we're going to trick him the, our way. We're going to get Jesus. We're going to give him this theological question, and our hope is, is that he's going to mess it up. And so they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answers them from what they would have known. This love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Ironically, maybe Jesus didn't stop there. He said, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is nothing new in these two commandments. You can go to Deuteronomy 6, as we'll look at in a minute, and see this commandment. You can go to Leviticus 19 and see that we're to love our neighbor. But the Pharisees had not put these two together the way Jesus had. And so there's nothing uh, original here. Jesus has gone back and he has used these two scriptures and he has linked them together. It is interesting, if we look at Luke's gospel, this summary is in Luke's gospel, and Jesus is not the one saying it. It's the lawyer. So it's this way in Luke 10, 26 and 27. Jesus asked the lawyer who had asked him the question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, how were you taught about this, this question you're asking me? And the lawyer replies, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting that that's the way that is worded in that text where in the Matthew text, Jesus is asked that what is the greatest commandment. In Luke, Jesus turns to the lawyer as he has recited this. He didn't open his Bible. He didn't pull it out of his pocket. He didn't have it. He didn't have any text. He knew it from memory because he had been taught this. And Jesus says to him, do this and you will live to the lawyer. If you will do this, if you will love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all your strength and all... Of, of your soul and love your neighbor as yourself, you will live. Every Pharisee knew this from Deuteronomy, from Moses' writings. 
They knew and understood. Every morning they would recite this commandment of love the Lord God. It was this way. Hear, O Israel, they would say, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh with your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your might. They would repeat that in the morning. They would repeat that at night. They would repeat that at every funeral service where they buried one of their own. They knew it. It was tradition. And this tradition was passed down from generation to generation to generation. But when it comes to you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus continued and he quotes that, and the whole law and the prophets will depend on these, it's as if what in their mind? The Jews wanted to trap Jesus. As you look at this text in Matthew 22, they have already talked to him and tried to trick him with uh, the Pharisees and Herodians about who do you pay your tax to? Uh, What do we do about taxes and paying them to the emperor? Do we not pay them at all? And so they were trying to get him to be condemned with his answer. And then the Sadducees asked him a quick question. Uh, a trick question on, oh, if a a woman dies, she's been married seven times, and when she gets to heaven uh, and she's raised from the dead, uh, who is she married to? The ironic thing there is the Sadducees didn't even believe in resurrection, uh, so they're, they're trying to get Jesus all across the board here. And now we come to this third test in this chapter And the Pharisees come back to him because he has answered and they have nothing on him on any any of these trick questions that they've tried to get him to condemn himself. And now they want to approach it from the faith of the fathers, uh, from the faith of the patriarchs. This love the Lord God that had been taught and recited for generation after generation. And they want to go to the very heart of the Jewish faith. Interesting, earlier in Matthew's gospel, in the fifth chapter, Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. For most certainly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even one smallest letter or a tiny pen stroke shall pass away from the law until all these things are accomplished. And so Jesus had great respect for the Jewish tradition. He had great respect for the word that they had. He lived it. In fact, he wrote it. He knew it. And so, it wasn't that Jesus was anyway disrespecting tradition or what was written. What he was doing was looking at their interpretation of how they had viewed this second part of his answer. You see, they had no question of everyone was to love God. This was compulsory. This was the way it was. And and they would say, absolutely, that is right. 
But they, in their tradition, as far as their interpretation of Leviticus 19, they would have never added it to what is the great commandment. Because you see, what they taught was, yes, you love the Lord God, but the responsibility to love others was graded. Those in the outer circles of the community, those that were outcast, those that were sinners in their eyes, those that were tax collectors, Gentiles, Samaritans, etc., you just name it, they were and they taught to love less. You don't love those the same way that you love the Jews or you love God. And so they had established their own laws around this scripture from Leviticus 19. And all of a sudden, their interpretation was being turned on its head. Their laws told people, oh, you can love the way you want to love outside of loving God. You can ignore others that are in the world. So they had added to Scripture, and this is what Jesus had an issue with. This is the problem that Jesus had. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor, and this gave a different slant to their interpretations because Jesus was putting this on equal footing. To love God is to love my neighbor, and to truly love my neighbor is to love God. In fact, this was radical. But you have to hear this to hear Jesus say, you are to love your enemies. Because there is no way that we in our human state would ever love our enemies. And, and so we recognize that our love for God and our love for others are connected. The love of God, the love of neighbor are inseparable. You cannot claim to love God if you don't love your neighbor. Essentially, the entire law of God boils down to these two simple commandments, not commandment, these two, love God with your whole being. And love whomever God has put next to you as you love yourself. The late Henry Hammond, he was an author. He was a New Testament professor. He wrote many um, uh, commentaries. In his Matthew's uh, Gospel commentary, he says this about this text. Jesus does not separate love for God from love for for man, since the latter flows from the former, and since without the latter, the former is impossible. So, when we look at this word, love God and love our neighbor, what, what does this mean to us? What does the Bible tell us about love? How does the Bible interpret love? Just this four-letter word. 
And we can look at love in many different ways. We talk about loving our dog, loving food, loving strawberries or ice cream or whatever. We talk about loving the opposite sex, our mate, our spouse. All of those are expressing affection that we have, this warm feeling uh, that we have inside as we, we love someone or love something. And that's, that's most often the way that we word this love. Because we associate the word love with affection, it's no wonder that when we have someone that annoys us or someone that hurts us or someone that we deem does not deserve our love, we can push that aside and we can feel okay with it because we have no affection for that person. Terry and I went to see um, the, the Chosen, if you, the four seasons in theaters right now, and uh, the first three episodes are there um, as you watch them together. And so we went Friday night to see those first three episodes in the theater. And uh, I'm not going to uh, spill the beans if you want to go see them or see them when they come out uh, for free. But um, they take, of course, some liberties with how to flesh out the story. And I really don't have a problem with that because it's not heretical in any way. But you watch these dynamics between the disciples. And uh, Simon and Matthew have um, some problems with each other. And, uh, you know, Matthew was the tax collector, and he was, um, uh, in the prior seasons, uh, he was going to ruin um, Simon and his family, uh, seize their boat, have him arrested for not paying taxes. Well, once Matthew started following Jesus, and at once his heart became uh, softened and no longer a tax collector, Simon had not and would not forgive him. So in these episodes, you see this dynamic begin to change. And, um, and so as you watch this, uh, as they come out, I hope you will pick up on what Jesus says to Simon Peter and what Jesus says to Matthew about this relationship, where it's at, and how it needs to be reconciled. It is an interesting dynamic. We don't just love those that we have affection for. The Bible, when it talks about love, primarily talks about love that keeps loving. And it talks about commitment. We may have warm feelings of gratitude towards God when we consider all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And those may be uh, feelings that we say are unwavering. They are a commitment that I have to the Lord because he died for me and he saved me and he has given me salvation. Thanks be to God for that. But does in any way our love for God follow in our love for one another? Does it follow in our love, which includes our enemies? Does it involve having love for someone else that might have wronged us? 
or maybe doesn't look like us or live like us or is outside of God's family? Has God in some way called us as believers as we love him to seriously have a heart for the world and others? We see it in marriage in, in, often, and we talked about it a few weeks ago, that, that this relationship, Christ giving his life for the church and us you know, loving one another as spouses, that we would sacrifice ourselves, our life, everything for our spouse, that we are to love as Christ loved the church. And so it's almost inseparable as we think about it, but yet marriage is very demanding. Every time that I uh, uh, do premarital counseling, I tell the couple that, look, this is going to be work. Uh, This is not going to be all just love and joy all the way through. You're going to face some issues, and you're going to have to stick with it and that commitment that you make. Uh, to one another. Sometimes that commitment goes to great sacrifice as we get older. Sometimes we really have to sacrifice because caring for, putting up with, sacrificing when health comes into play, that sometimes is where marriages go wrong. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to to love. My love for you have faded because of the circumstances that our marriage have faced. I've said this before. It comes to mind every time I think about this as a couple that I was doing marital counseling and we got to the vows after uh, several counseling sessions. And I said, um, as I was going through them, Uh, that you will vow to love her until death you do part. And he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. I said, why wouldn't you say that? He said, because it has to say, I will love her until I don't love her anymore, and then I get to leave her. And I said, time out. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't get to do this wedding if that's what's going to be said. I said, I'll bow out of this. You go find someone else that will marry you. I did look at her and say, did you hear what he said? I really wanted her to hear what he had just said. Love is tough, and it doesn't come naturally to us in our fallen state. We don't have to look far after the fall of man to see the first murder. We don't have to look far after the fall of man to see God is weeping over what has, he has created. And I, he says, I, I wonder if I should even have done this. Love does not come naturally to us. But I will tell you, the kind of love that comes from God when we put it into practice can change us radically. And it can change the world. Love is a commitment that we make. It is a deliberate action of our will. 
To love means to deliberately turn toward another person, their needs, to give something away of ourselves, whatever that may be, without thinking that I have or need to, do, to get something in return. And we see this in Luke's gospel in the 15th chapter when we think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we'll get to that um, back in, a little further in the spring. But you know the story, and the man passes. Others have passed by, but the Samaritan passes by, and he sees the need. He commits to the need. This man who is his enemy, who would be considered his enemy, or he their enemy, and he commits his money, he commits his time, he commits his energy, he commits self-sacrificing. I will come back and check on him, and if there's any more due, I will pay it. This love and commitment of self-sacrificing is being put into action, being put into words that he would care for another. And we do not have to look far and it's almost beyond imagination to, to, to think that this kind of love is in the world. It's in short supply. If it was in the world, then there would be no more war or violence or anything of that nature. Uh, everyone would want to care for one another. There would be a gentleness, and we know that that's not the world in which we live in and probably will not be the world that we live in until Christ returns. But because that's not the case, Jesus came to pay for our lovelessness. He came so that we could be called children of God. He came so that the Holy Spirit could indwell in us and the love of Christ the one who died for us, the one who touched the dumb and the death and the disease, the disabled, the one who warned and wept and washed feet, the one who said, search for the lost sheep, the one who talked about a father who would run and embrace his son who had squandered away his inheritance the one that would talk about turning the other cheek or walking the extra mile, the one who carried the cross after being severely beaten, the one who was nailed to the cross, is the one who welcomes us into his family, the one who forgives us of our sins, the one who allows us to see, be seen by the Father perfect, in his eyes, my watch just told me, did you fall? Let me call 911. No. The one who is, sees us perfect in his eyes. And it's all because of Christ. Because of his love for us that we are forgiven. One pastor put it this way, and this is what he said, and it'll be on the screen. These four little... Um, sentences it says if you're a believer we no longer have to love we get to love we don't have to love in order to get to heaven we love because heaven is already ours in Christ 
we don't love in order to win God's favor. We love because we already have God's favor in Christ. We don't love because or so that God will love us. We love because God has loved us in Christ with the greatest love we will ever know, the crucified love of Christ. This response of Jesus to the Pharisees that day, we call the great commandment. Last week, we looked at the great promise that that Jesus was going to usher in his church. He was going to use us throughout time, starting with the disciples and moving forward, that the, the, the believers would be a part of the church, would use talents and gifts to build the church, even to the point that Jesus said, all that's going on, Satan and everything else, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will last forever. And now we come to this commandment that Jesus uses two Old Testament verses, and he says, love God, love your neighbor. This is important, church, he says. Jesus is saying to us, are you going all in? Or are you keeping something back? Have you pushed all the chips, everything in your life to the middle, to Jesus? Have you in your heart, mind, and soul, in all of your might, agreed to serve him knowingly that it's going to require sacrifice and love for someone you may not want to love. Are we truly showing love for others? Do we have a heart for the loss? Do we care about the soul of others? Do we love Christ? Or do we love as Christ has loved us? Do we? What would the church look like if we were to be all in? If all of us were to to be all in, because Jesus says, yes, love me, but I expect for you to love others. Love me, but... I expect for you to tell others about me. Maybe it's just my old age, or maybe it's the fact that I have studied the Bible for all of these years. But I believe, unless we have a heart for the loss, the church will be inward-focused. It will be about us. Think about that. What are we keeping back? Are we loving the way Christ loved? Are we all in? I was standing at the table that night and watched that guy win thousands of dollars. But I will tell you, some would say his luck ran out. Some would say, if he had any, I'm not sure he did. But the very next hand, 
another guy came and sat at the table. And they began to play another hand of poker. And this guy this time pushed it all in again. And he lost. He walked away from that table without a single chip in his hand. So here's my question. You can be all in, but if you aren't all in on Christ, it means that you are in and playing with something else. And the love of God is not going to be in action the way God has called it to be in action in our life. So my question would be, are you all in on Christ? So that we not only love God who died, sent his son to die for us, but we love our neighbor regardless I'm not talking about watering down the gospel. I'm not talking about compromising on the standards, morality, or anything else. I'm talking about sharing the love of Christ with others. Are we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that reminds us, reminds us of these two great commandments of love God and love others. And I pray, Father, that we as a church would do that. We as individuals, followers of Jesus Christ, would do that. So that we have pushed everything in. We are so solely on Jesus in our life, in all that we do, in all that we say. May it be so, Father, so that you might be glorified in all things. We pray this in your name. Amen.